Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's the Real Vision Daily Briefing for Thursday, August 12th, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington. We do have a truly great show today. And all Real Vision crew coming at you, Peter Pinkasoff and Weston Nakamura. Here's what we're looking at right now in terms of stories. As you can see from the chart next to me, it's been a quiet week, in, quiet month rather, I should say, in U.S. equity markets. But today, uh, we see the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average taking out all-time highs. Dow closing at 35,499. That's up only 0.04% on the day, but it is enough to notch an all-time high. S&P 500 closing at 4,460, up 0.3% on the day. Finally, the VIX declining. Uh, looks like about uh, it looks like about 50 basis points down to 15 spot six. Peter, welcome back to the show. What are you looking at right now? Thank you, Ash. Yeah, VIX down eight days in a row. Markets drifting steadily higher probably on the back of those unemployment numbers that we saw today. Initial claims came in at 375,000, which is a $12,000 decrease week over week. So the gist is that the economic recovery seems to be continuing. Uh, Michigan and New York were one of the biggest um, uh, decliners on that, where California actually saw an increase in claims. And there are some lawsuits being thrown around about to, to governors about being able to even stop some of these programs. We'll see how that transpires into the data. But overall, things look good. Ash? Yeah. Another thing we were looking at here today uh, is the crypto hack stories. We got another one today, unfortunately. This one, uh, Dow Maker. This is a crypto crowdfunding platform. It looks like hacked for $7 million, which is relatively small as these things go, uh, but obviously still a lot of money. Only about 5,000 uh, or so users affected. Finally, some news on yesterday's hack. Uh, the Poly Hack or Hackers did an AMA chat. That's an Ask Me Anything chat. This is obviously a surreal and interesting story. But even more surreally, uh, the hackers have given back $258 million. That's over a quarter of a billion dollars from the 600 or so million that was taken yesterday. Still missing in funds, $342 million. Weston, let's go you. I wanted to talk a little bit about something that Peter was leading into. He was talking about the jobs numbers from today. I just want to point out, you crushed it on a clip on the exchange on Real Vision on CPI. Tell us about that story. Uh, sure, happy to. First of all, I did not crush it. Um, Brad, uh, my partner in crime from Exchanging Lanes, our program on the exchange, uh, absolutely crushed it. So basically, uh, for those who are not familiar, uh, Brad is a very sharp uh, young truck driver. He basically takes a lap around the northeastern United States week over week, sees the entire array of um, you know industries and 
landscapes and you know different people that he interacts with. And there really is no better macro indicator that I've ever met because he's basically giving us real time sort of on the ground um, information that he sees. Uh, one of the things that we were um, that we've been paying attention to is used cars and new cars rather, because used cars accounted for a third of CPI for the last two prints that were north of five percent. Um, used cars have just been in a ridiculous. You know, I mean, I, I'll call it a bubble. Um, it's just co completely irrational to to pay for more for a used car than a new car. And so, what I was saying to him was, let us know the, the moment you start seeing, if you start seeing any new cars shipments coming in. Well, two weeks ago in uh, our episode, he flagged he's seeing basically every type of you know sedans, luxury cars, SUVs, everything across the board, like he's never seen before. And I said, all right. That's it then, that's it for the used car madness. Uh, and then therefore that's it for, um, you know, CPI just get, just kind of getting out of hand if, if this is one third of the index. And so basically, you know, I, my job is to put a, a market or a economic consequence to what he sees, you know, in real time. I basically said that um, CPI is gonna come in weak uh, likely and, and it's gonna be because of, you know, used cars and then sure enough, what did we get uh, yesterday? Well, headline was you know in line with um, with estimates. Core was down a little bit, but it was because indeed of used cars. Um, the BLS cites this specifically, saying that the um, you know the kind of tepid uh, inflation you know mellowing basically was thanks to used cars uh, having dropped from about you know ten percent month over month to. Uh, I think like like seven basis points. Um, so that really did put a cap on uh, on inflation. Um, you know, had that trend continued, it would not have been so. And so, you know, we're very, very kind of proud of ourselves for um, being able to, you know, I guess beat a lot of like Wall Street analysts, but then we're, we're not very surprised either because we're getting real live data, you know, and, uh, you know, fr from from the real world and not from some alt data set or whatever however people construct these sort of things. So, I just love that story. It reminds me of the stories back in the day of Warren Buffett going places and asking steakhouses if they were still taking American Express and then betting big on Shearson when they said they were. I mean, it's just a fascinating real real-time intelligence on the ground story. I wish we had a clip to show. We'll have to bring that in uh, at some point, maybe next week. And I also thought the story was really striking. Uh, and I know it's just an anecdote, but it is a poignant one. And I think one that we can, you know, maybe think about in terms of what it signifies in a broader sense. The guy who comes in with a used car, sells it to the lot, walks away with a new car and two grand in his pocket. I mean, that's clearly a market that's mispriced. Yeah, exactly. So that's why I was saying that this is because of how irrational it is. Um, and the, the reason that that happens, by the way, is because, you know, used cars have more margin. That's why the dealers are, are going to, you know, buy their feet. But, but we're watching this and, you know, he's telling me about, he's telling us rather um, on, the, on the program about how um, the, basically when you have dealerships, you have, you put your, your latest and greatest sort of, um, you know, line of products out on the, on the very front. And you'll have like a, a BMW dealership with, you know, Audis that are seven years old and they're getting older and older each time he drives them drives by which you know says a lot about them but um yeah the moment that cars came in and then they were coming in across the board through from japanese cars german cars you uh american cars 
And that was tied to uh, Renesas, the Japanese, um, the leading Japanese um, semiconductor auto manufacturer um, for, for semiconductors, uh, having sort of like this kind of freak fire incident that they basically cleaned up. And so all the stars were aligning for, you know, chips to have come back in so that production could get going again across the board. This was at the semiconductor level. They were arriving at ports. They were, you know, they were being sold. And that kind of irrational bubble is very easy to, to, to pop. And so, um, and that's, that's what happened. My only worry was that I didn't know when the CPI cutoff time would be because it came in kind of like the last week and a half, two weeks, but it was enough to, um, yeah, to, to just crush uh, uh, used car prices that were just getting out of hand. Yeah, great story, great analysis, Weston. Peter, back over to you. We were talking a little bit off camera about volatility. What are you seeing in that space? I know you're thinking about this in a very sophisticated way, some nuance that you see. What are you looking at right now on volatility? Sure, thank you. Yeah, I don't know if it's nuance, and I just wanted to give a quick shout to Ash and Brett, or to uh, Weston and Brad for that analysis. Uh, really great call, I think. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll ask a follow-up after, but on the volatility side, I'm seeing VXX down eight days in a row. Now, my background has been working in the quantum mental space before, so I did a study to see what happens when the VXX ETF goes down eight days in a row. Since 2018, I'm just using the last three years because I don't really want to go back on right. a longer term time. I, I care about this cycle, right? So what happens when ball goes down so much in this cycle? Well, the last five times that has happened before, today would be the sixth time, the last five times, three days later, on average, VXX was down every single time by an average of 2%. So I guess the mantra or the, the, the deal here is that, you know, cheap volatility oftentimes gets cheaper. And I forgot, the, there was a famous vol trader, um, I, I think it was Sinclair or, or somebody, they said, um, volatility is weird. You want to buy it high and you want to sell it when it's low. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, I mean, Weston, I know you have some thoughts about this. I think we're all kind of implicitly short volatility in our lives, right? You think you walk across the street, you don't expect to get hit uh, by one of those used cars, uh, you know, at 50 miles an hour. What are your thoughts, Weston? Yeah, life is um, life is short vol. Um, um, unless, unless you're, you know, Hunter S. Thompson, then life is long vol. But, <laughs> but, but otherwise, for for normal people, um, yeah, you, you live a short vol life, right? Um, that's that's absolutely the case. Um, I think also too, yeah, the VIX VIX futures basically are uh, they're going to um, expire next Wednesday, I believe. And you have UVXY, the the other ETF that you know. Uh, so Peter's talking about VXX. UVXY is the 1.5x levered one, uh, still holding a lot of um, August futures that they need to roll. They um, basically the spread between September and August futures uh, on VIX are getting massively wide. When it gets wide, when, when that spread, that second month, front month um, VIX spread widens, SPX goes up. When it collapses, SPX goes down. And so I think that next Wednesday, upon um, you know expiry, we're probably going to see you know one two days sort of pullback. This kind of happens routinely. So you're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah. 
Weston, this is the only time in my life I am ever going to get to segue off a Hunter S. Thompson quote. <laughs> so let's throw really quick talking about Hunter S. Thompson and psychedelics in a very different way, in a much more medicalized context, in an investable context. Let's take a look at a clip uh, from earlier today. We already had a major uh, mental health crisis before COVID, particularly, again, we're talking about uh, anxiety and depression. Then COVID hits. And then you see this massive increase in mental health or mental illness diagnoses. It's a very real, uh, very real issue that's facing not just this country, but the world. And it's not going to get better anytime soon. Now look at the current medications or treatments that are currently on the market that have been uh, approved by the FDA and they're not very effective. We talk about SSRIs, which maybe have a 30, 40% success rate. If you get into addiction, again, you're talking about 30 to 40% success rate at the, at the top end. Now let's look at some of these psychedelic compounds. I, uh, one I'm going to bring up is a study that was done by Johns Hopkins University in 2018 on smoking cessation using psilocybin, which is a chemical compound in magic mushrooms that will make you uh, hallucinate. So this study was done uh, in, in 2018, and essentially the whole idea was, can we use psilocybin, uh, the compounds of psilocybin matched with a therapist and, and see what happens if you can help people quit smoking? So a year after the study was done, 80% of the people that took part in this trial were still not smoking. Now, the current, the, the current FDA-approved uh, treatment on the market um, which is the high, the I would say the most popular has a 30% success rate in treating in treating smoking addiction. Just from an investment standpoint, think about that for a second. You have an, you if you're investing in a smoking cessation product, which again this is literally a billion dollar market. Do you want to invest in the company that has a 30% success rate or the one that has an 80% success rate? It's really not hard to figure out how you want to pursue that. Well, there you have it. That's from an interview that I did with Jeff Siegel for the Exponential Age series here on Real Vision on the Essential Tier. You know, look, I know I was joking a little bit about Hunter S. Thompson, but the point that that clip makes, I think, is that this is very serious, serious medication for serious psychiatric illnesses, for addiction, uh, for minor psychiatric illnesses. This is truly a brave new world. Uh, and, and let me just say, you know, the, the, the case that's cited right there, I think it was a study from Johns Hopkins University on smoking cessation. This was a study that was done back in 2018. 80% of the people who took place in the clinical trials ceased smoking. And he gives a little bit of context. SSRIs, the success rate is 30 to 40%. This is extraordinary. You're talking about basically being able to double the rate that people are able to quit smoking uh, from psilocybin mushroom treatments. Uh, and by the way, this isn't something that needs to be taken long term. It's something that's done in therapy sessions, unlike SSRIs, which are often taken uh, for weeks or months or years. Uh, I should say months or years. I think you have to take it for a significant period of time before you're able to even attempt to quit smoking on those medications. Guys, I think that's just staggering. And it really is a, a just a totally new paradigm, a totally different way of thinking about these psychedelic substances. Yeah, you know, 10 years ago, this conversation might have been really taboo and we might not even have a platform to actually take these things seriously. I'm glad that, you know, we're able to have these guests on and, and talk about, you know, just how powerful our mind really is without maybe having to rely on some serious, really costly medication and this idea about uh, more natural medicines or remedies for people who uh, are going to benefit from these things, I think should be taken very seriously.
Yeah, Weston, any thoughts on psychedelics? Not your usual remit here at Real Vision. Um, no, so my, my overall thought is um, it's kind of this niche sort of industry now, but I'm kind of just very interested to see how that's going to, from a sector perspective, disrupt the pharma sector. Yeah, and Jeff Siegel, if you, if you, if you have a chance, you, you really should check this interview out because I think it's fantastic. He talks all about that. He, in the opening segment of this uh, particular uh, deep dive interview, Jeff basically says, hey, look, guys, there are five stocks that are trading on major exchanges, meaning NASDAQ or NYSE right now, that are psychedelic companies, pure play psychedelics companies. This is very big business. This is very significant news. It's interesting. It seems like almost because of the pandemic, because of the oxygen being sucked out of the room, maybe all the healthcare reporters were writing about COVID. You would think under ordinary circumstances during ordinary times, this is a story that you would have heard about in a very big way, but this kind of sneaked under the radar in kind of a stealth way. I think it's really kind of bizarre and fascinating and in a way, incredibly uplifting about the potential for these drugs, these medications to help people. Let me go back to Peter. I know you wanted to jump in and cover something uh, that we missed a little bit earlier in the intro. Yeah, sure. So, Weston, regarding uh, CPI, um, you know, the market reaction so far has been slightly tame. My impression on a CPI miss was that bonds were probably going to trade higher. Um, I'm wondering what your interpretation is from a price action standpoint with regard to, you know, that auto car component coming off. And also, you know, this is a two part question. Do you see, you know, us permanently you know, at a top in used car prices, because I was looking at the car gurus used car price index, and it seems to have leveled off as well. And I'm wondering if you see, it's, it, do you think it's going to sustain sideways or have a sharp drop lower? And what kind of impact do you think that might happen on the bonds? Yeah, um, great question for both. Let me answer a second one first. So um, in terms of, uh, you know, is this is this transitory, this, this pullback, right? Um, I actually think this is, and again, this is, I'm going to have to collect more data from, from, from Brad, but um, essentially what I think is that um, the used car sort of, you know, momentum will probably be replaced by new car price increases. So the overall, um, you know, like core CPR headless CPI, it might not actually like, you know, make that much of a difference because you'll still get that, you know, that, that auto FOMO, but it'll just be uh, for new car supply. Um, but uh, the, the days of bidding up, you know, a, a Ford Taurus to 60 grand or whatever it is, is probably those, those days are probably done. As far as the um, market reaction is concerned. So I had to trade this, right? Because just out of principle and in case, like, you know, we actually happen to hit this. And if I didn't have a trade on, that would be completely unacceptable, right? So, but that day we had a 10 year treasury auction uh, later that day. We had two Fed uh, hawks, like speaking at like the time, like when the you know when the print was coming out, and so there was a lot of um, there was there was a lot of headwinds against being long. Um, so I was long calls on thirty-year uh, Treasury futures, and so I was literally playing it for the knee-jerk algo pop because that's the only pure sort of way I could do it, and so I had like. <laughs> Limits in, and I was like, I'm gonna be out at 8:31, and that, that was the best. But it, but it did end up popping, right? At the at the release of the it of did the auction, yeah. It, it did, and I I I closed I closed everything out, and then you know drifted back down. I felt like a genius, and then the 10 year auction came in, and then the bonds rallied even more, and I was like, nah, all right, well, <laughs> so. 
Yeah. Um, here's a question that comes to us from Dalton, which is any questions uh, or any implications that you guys see from PPI data, or I would add CPI data, uh, for the direction of the markets going forward? Well, I think that um, healthy inflation is probably pretty good. You know, we, we, my take is that, um, and I, this might be non-consensus, we could have uh, above average inflation with falling yields, right? Because the debt magnitude since COVID basically, or, you know, even before then, has just been so astronomically high that you sort of put yield limits in place. You, you know, you can't go above a natural level without having some sort of, I don't want to say catastrophe, but a, a real catastrophe could happen with really, really high yields, especially on a rate of change basis. We saw what happened to the ARC funds when the 10-year yield got, you know, pushed up um, back in February. That was basically the high on all that. And those are super high growth companies. And what happens when yields go up? I, I know this is probably being a dead horse and a lot of you have heard it, but uh, the net present value of that growth has to be discounted at a higher rate. So that means the valuations would be lower. And a lot of the you know companies, that, you know, one of our greatest export at, from the US, it's technology, right? Silicon Valley, we're super high growth. And when you have higher yields, that growth actually kind of slows down. So, um, you know, it's tough to say market impact on the short to medium term, but uh, I, I think it's a rate of change game for how fast yields go up but I, I can't really see them going up uh, too fast. Yeah, Weston, any thoughts? Yeah, um, just to, to follow on with, um, with Peter's point. Um, so actually one of the, um, the trades that I had on for, for yesterday, but that wasn't gonna be like a sort of very, very short-term options play, um, was going long SoftBank, which is a very sort of uh, controversial thing. SoftBank had reported earnings the day before. Um, SoftBank, the quarter before, reported, I believe it was the most profitable quarter in corporate Japan history. Um, they did something like 5 trillion yen, and it was a massive turnaround from the minus 1 trillion yen they did, you know, um, year over year. The stock had sold, that was basically kind of top tick for the stock, and it just sold off like 30, 35% from, from there. Why did that happen after such a phenomenal quarter? Because that's when CPI also came out and first broke into 4% uh, handle. And this is a firm that has a ton of exposure to tech um, and tech trading and like tech vol trading. And so to Peter's point, um, the market treated it as, um, you know, as, as it fundamentally should. And, and basically you just got softening, just getting hammered and destroyed. And, you have it dragging down the Nikkei, um, underperforming the rest of the DM indices. And so um, so I, I figured with, with everything kind of bad priced in, China's exposure, all that kind of stuff that priced in at this point, maybe this is the bottom, go long SoftBank. Um, today, it's not really working out so well, but we'll see how that works. Um, hey, Wes, give us a, a briefing for people who aren't following the Japanese equity markets. Give us a sense of where we've been uh, overview and bring us up to date throughout the COVID era. What's been happening in stocks in Japan? Um, I mean, so other than China, Japan is the worst performing. Um, you know, from a from a well, obviously from a stock perspective, because there is no JGB market anymore. But um, yeah, uh, so basically, what you have is uh, domestic Japanese um, retail traders are basically the same as you know the the retail um, explosion that happened in the U.S., but they just did it kind of like a four year head start. 
they're a little more, more sophisticated. They trade, trade swaps and all that. And everybody is kind of pessimistic about Japan. And they're very comparatively bullish on the U.S. So a lot of this SPX upside, you're actually getting from overnight from Japan. Um, and so, yeah, so they're trading, they're long, and they're, they're bullish in the U.S. And nobody's touching uh, the Nikkei. There will be a time to go long the Nikkei. It's going to outperform because Japan is very under-vaccinated. So the reopen hasn't even happened yet. So once the reopen is basically far done with in Europe and the U.S. and the rest of the DM uh, markets, Japan will have its its time. But the time is not now. Um, COVID is horrendous, by the way, uh, in 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 uh, Tokyo right now. It's like um, like like p- there was somebody who had to go who was turned away from like 160 hospitals um, before they you know they were able to see. So it's it's just it's just getting really bad. Um, but uh, but yeah, there will be a time to go long Nikkei, just not now. Yeah. By the way, I knew you had to get in the dig about the JGB market. <laughs> How could I not? <laughs> You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Um, so let's take a look. I, there's some other questions coming in here. I'm scrolling. They're moving by pretty fast. This one comes from Frank Bush. Uh, and the question is, uh, what about the latest messages about further chip shortages uh, being uh, further chip shortages? Does that just not matter any longer? Peter Weston, uh, whoever wants to take this one, jump in. Weston, I think you, you got to take this one. Yeah, I, I, it, it absolutely matters. Um, so the for for basically for the automobile sector, it still matters. Every single auto CEO is coming out there saying that we're very concerned and all that. Toyota, you know, had a blowout record earnings, and they're still saying very we're very concerned. Or, you know, their biggest concern is this chip shortage, and those are sort of the, the more like the, the less the, the less sophisticated sort of chips. Um, and you know, the, you you have this fire, you have this uh, in, in in Japan from the Renaissance plant, you have. Um, Taiwan with their sort sort of like you know the water shortage and you have like a, kind of a, all these like one-off things that are all stacked on top of each other in addition to supply chain disruption and all that. But when it comes to things like you know I mean computing and all that, uh, we we rely on chips everywhere. And if we're not able to get them, if there's a you know a, a huge backlog, I mean, the, and and it's it's a geopolitical issue too with with Taiwan and China, U.S., Japan, and you know um, and all that too. So this is, uh, um, I don't want to say it's undercovered or underappreciated because it's certainly front and center for a lot of people, but I, I think that it really needs to be much more front and center uh, than it is. Um, this is a really big story. Well, it kind of goes back to your auto thing too as well, right? Because if you, they can't get new cars on supply fast enough, that auto, because of a chip shortage, that used car, you know, we want to call it bubble or distortion, uh, could be sustained, right? Sure. Sure, absolutely. I mean, and this impacts actually impacts crypto, right? I mean, like anything and everything, right? I mean, so we we need um, chip production, um, and it takes a long time to 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 make chips, let alone to build out a factory, which is what they're do, which is what TSMC is doing in you know Arizona and potentially in Japan and all that. But so this is going to be potentially um, a multi-year sort of thing that we're we're not going to ever get used to. Um, it's just going to be this. Dra- this potential drag on the global economy. 
By the way, let me hit crypto for a minute there because this, uh, you know, this hack, the Poly Network hack from yesterday is such a fascinating one. Uh, and the news breaking today that they've given back uh, nearly 50% uh, of the uh, funds that were taken. To me, what's so interesting about this is it shows, you know, as you say, Weston, crypto is very much connected now to the rest of the world by, via the macroeconomic transmission channels. Yet at the same time, it really is its own separate universe. I don't think any of us uh, in the traditional financial space have ever heard of uh, someone stealing half a billion dollars, more than half a billion dollars, $600 million, and then giving almost half of it back. This is something that for people who aren't in the space, it's really hard to get your head around. Um, the uh, the person or persons who, uh, who, who hacked the Poly Network were having this AMA and Ask Me Anything chat uh, via Ethereum basically embedding messages in, in, and you can actually look, if you go to Etherscan, you can actually see the messages uh, embedded in the protocol itself. This is kind of a weird thing, and their stated reason uh, for the hack was they claimed they weren't doing it uh, for the money. Now, I guess you can sort of scoff at that, but the reality is they gave back a quarter of a billion dollars. I'd venture to say that nobody on this call has ever given back a quarter of a billion dollars. That's a pretty powerful statement. But their claim is that they were doing it to expose weakness in the underlying protocol. And the other really interesting thing, and I haven't seen any mainstream media outlets pick up this aspect of the story, but I read it in the underlying AMA chat that was embedded uh, in, in uh, Ether. This is really fascinating, in the Ethereum network, I should say. This is really fascinating. They claim that they were swapping, someone asked in this AMA, hey, if you guys are planning on giving the money back or you did this because you were uh, trying to expose an underlying weakness in the protocol, why are you swapping out of the coins you uh, took into uh, stable coins. And the answer uh, that the hacker gave was, we're doing that so we can earn interest because we plan on giving all of the money that was taken back. This is a really weird, unusual story. Uh, we don't really have all the facts yet. Uh, it's unclear exactly what happened. Obviously, this is going to be something that people are going to be looking at. They're going to be investigating. But I think for me, the big takeaway point is like, you know, this isn't your grandfather's financial markets. This is an unusual space. It has its own culture, its own ethos. People who are looking at it from the outside probably just find it bizarre. It's very, very, very different in here. Didn't they raise like $200 in charity off this as well or something like that? <laughs> yeah, I, I suspect people have probably contributed to it, um, you know, contributed to those addresses. And people are asking them for money saying, hey, if you guys are, you know, doing this for... Uh, <laughs> for philanthropic reasons, uh, you know, I, my car just died. And so it is kind of a strange space. And But it is, you know, again, and I keep saying this over and over again, it's just extremely, extremely early. Um, but for people who are interested in it, there's a lot of news flow and there's a lot of action to trade. Ash, I have a question for you, actually. Do you, what, do you, what do you make of it, like, overall? Do you think that maybe the, the, the team or the person who was responsible of all this do you think that they might have identified um, a footprint that they might have left, and that's why they're giving it all back? Um, the whole interest thing is very bizarre, right? It, it's just so weird. Like you you steal all this money, and you're like, no, no, I'm I'm going to collect interest on everything. I'm going to give back to you, but it's kind of a lesson. It's just it is very bizarre. But what are your thoughts overall from the actor standpoint? Yeah, the story broke yesterday that they had identified an email address, uh, an IP address, and some other technological footprints uh, of the person who penetrated the network. Uh, and so there was some thought that, hey, maybe that's why they're, you know, they're giving it back. According to the AMA chat, the hacker said, nope, you don't have me. Those are all burner accounts. I created them. You got nothing. There's no cookie crumb trail. You have nothing. So, again, 
we'll have to see how this uh, turns out. But it is a, it's just a fascinating story to watch to see this merger effectively of the software world uh, and the financial system, something we've just we've never seen before. Yeah. So, Peter, what else are you looking at on the traditional macro capital market side? Um, you know, it, it's been kind of slow and um I'm saying it's been kind of slow because the rotations have been really, really weird. I think if you're a short-term factor quant trader, you're probably making a killing because one day value is outperforming, the next day value sucks, the next day value is outperforming, the next day momentum is outperforming. Then it's just this weird back and forth, and um, I think it probably has a lot to do with our uncertainty of the future. Like, have, have things fundamentally changed since COVID? I think the answer is yes. But this thing about a Delta variant and our, you know, policy and municipal reactions to it, um, I, I don't know if we've seen the full effects or even the social effects of something like that. As you know, like population growth is one of the biggest drivers of GDP, right? And we still haven't even seen how the last year and a half really could impact uh, our our behavior as a society. And those, I think, I still think it's very early days and. And from a market standpoint, yeah, there's some, you know, volatility is is okay in some certain names. I think the meme stocks are trading pretty well. Uh, the ARC names are also quite volatile from a trading perspective. But if you're if you're kind of a buy and hold person, I mean, like Procter and Gamble is all the way back. Is it all the way back to COVID lows? It's just it's just, you would never think that, right? Procter and Gamble is probably one of the biggest beneficiaries to a new uh, environment like this with you know uh, sanitary products, et cetera. Uh, you would think that they would have the most right. influence, something like that, but it's just it, it's it's just weird. Um, so, I'm a, I'm more of a person who you know I have my long term stuff, but from a trading perspective, I'm kind of just doing what works. And um, you know what works right now, I think, is is some of these um, high growth names look pretty good. I was looking at Twilio the other day, um, has a nice little chart set up for a breakout. Um, but that that's really it. It's, it's just I'm trying to try not to get in over my head on any big long term narratives until it becomes yeah. a little bit more clear. Yeah, that's really interesting on PG, the story about how you would expect that with all the products that they make, they would seem to be very much in demand in a viral crisis uh, coming basically flat and back to the flat relative to the post-COVID lows. That's an interesting uh, story. By the way, I should say uh, for law enforcement and our viewers, no CG, I am not the poly network hacker. That's not my work. Uh, Final question. I know we ran long today due to some technical difficulties at the beginning, but I wanted to get in just one more question before we wrapped. This one comes to us uh, from Turbo Kuma, uh, and the question is a broad one. Any thoughts on oil? Uh, Weston, Peter, any thoughts on oil? Weston, go ahead. I, get, I got the last one. Uh, yeah, so the that kind of what was it, like a 7% like sell off that we had um that kind of you know th that broke that that upside that looked like it was going to break into like the 9 like you know 90 handle um a lot of that so that was triggered this is like initially triggered by um you know the, the OPEC headline and all that kind of thing but that was actually a lot of it was options positioning that kind of did that so there's a lot of like options related activity that is dictating the um, spot or the you know the the front month futures. Um, so uh, I I don't pers like I personally don't have a, a view on it, but I know that it is definitely um, much more derivative related that like as of the last few call it two weeks so than it is um, any sort of fundamental supply and demand sort of story. Yeah, I, I think that Weston, you're right. Like, and your options point goes back to kind of what I was saying. 
there's something that's driving the markets in the medium term, and it's tough to identify what is. Option flows are obviously one of them, like a quick 7% pullback on option expiration. It's it's a market mechanics thing. I don't think it has really anything to do with uh, long-term supply and demand. Um, I do think you can keep it simple with oil probably and just use inflation as a proxy. Mm. Now, is is oil the, you know, the tail wagging the dog? I think probably. Um, but at this juncture, w- what I meant by that is, you know, uh, large increases in oil spill over into inflation data, right? But not the other way around. Uh, inflation doesn't happen first and then you see it. But um, yeah, I think you just, if you think that there's going to be above average inflation, I think oil is just a good long proxy for that. Yeah. Listen, guys, such a pleasure to be doing this with both of you. Super fun to have an all Real Vision crew on this show. Really enjoyed it. Hope we can do it again soon. Thanks for joining us, both of you, Peter Thanks. and Weston. Thanks a lot. Thanks for watching, everybody. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.